Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Tara Quinn Chirillo, a counselling psychologist with a private practice in Horsham, Sussex, who does significantly more than therapy. Tara is going to talk to us today about her journey from an NHS learning disability service into private practice and how she developed some enviable skills at engaging with the media. So welcome, Tara. Hi. So I'll be honest, one reason that I was really pleased when you agreed to come on the podcast is that my background in the NHS was also in learning disability. But when I went into private practice, I just couldn't imagine how that experience was going to translate into private work. And I think that's because my LD work didn't involve a lot of therapy. So I think I can learn a lot from you. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners with LD experience will be really interested too. So shall we start back there then? What made you take that plunge into private practice? I guess if I'm honest, so having two children and I was commuting a long way to London from where I live in Sussex um, and I had been thinking about branching out, doing that little bit more than just NHS work. Um, So having a second child made me logistically have to make a new start and a new decision. Um, So I just started up very gradually and thought about what client group I might work with. I do have a background in adult mental health, so that helped me out. And just remembering those really cool skills that we have when we're doing therapy with people with learning disabilities and actually how many wonderful things about LD work so the visual tools can translate wonderfully when you're working with the general adult population as well as those with learning disability in private practice. Yeah I kind of wish that I'd been that thoughtful so I was in a similar situation that I was pushed into private practice really by family circumstances yeah um but for me I kind of ran headlong um and was just like, I hope I've got some skills for therapy <laughs> um, and just kind of tried it out on the job. And But that is very much what I've realised over time, that all of those skills were still there for me in different ways. I think sometimes it's really easy to forget what our kind of generic skills are. And I think one of the things about working in the NHS, and that was a wonderful, wonderful time, is that quite a lot of what you do is dictated by management and policies and who you'll see and when. And actually what's really refreshing about branching out into private practice is to go, well, actually, what were the core skills that I used to use when I was meeting the demands of managers and kind of clinical services? So going back to basics, what do I know? What do I want to do? And for me, flipping it on this head, how can I bring something to my local community? So I've stayed very local with my work. Um, And that's actually created the foundation of the work and the other projects that I do today. Mm. So when you got started, what services were you offering? So I kept it very simple. So I just hired a room for one or two hours a week to get my foot in the door because I didn't know how much money I was going to make, how much it, I had absolutely no idea how much it cost to rent a room, for example, because you don't get, you're not privy to that information in the NHS. So I started very simply. So I just went for mainstream. I only work with adults anyway. So I went for mainstream mental health and adults with learning disabilities. So I just did a very basic WordPress website which I still have today it does the job for now Um, and I went to GP surgeries I did some pictures I really spent a lot of time doing prep work and I guess that's the thing for me that was very new is that obviously you don't get paid for that time but putting that legwork in in the beginning was absolutely literally fundamental to what I did so I got known in the community so that when someone would go to the GP very slowly they would then get referred on I also linked in with some local therapists already met them for coffee joined a couple of CPD networks and spent my time. So I literally saw about one or two people a week for a few months and then I it snowballed from there. I joined a few websites, registered private providers like Beeper and AXA, and it just kind of went in a nice stepping stone format from there. I couldn't love that more. I think the advice to actually get into your community, network with people, get to know the GPs, the local services, and your colleagues – because yes. really we can feel like we don't have colleagues in private practice yeah. but we do yeah. we, we yeah. all need to be there for each other 
Yeah. And if it's okay to say as well, I was a little bit worried about stepping on toes. So I come from quite a small town, but there was a couple of already established psychologists who I've got to know really well now. So I was worried that I didn't want to look like I was kind of invading their territory or trying to steal ideas about how they work. But actually what I have found by making yourself vulnerable and saying, hey, I'm here. How could we work together now? We share referrals. We have a good platform. Quite often when I get referrals, even this morning, someone will say, XYZ has sent me your way because they're full at the moment or they feel that your skills may be more suited or if I have a child referral I can now say XYZ that's the person that you want and actually together we're creating quite a community of psychologists even though we're not employed together we work in completely separate buildings it makes you feel as you say you've got that virtual team which is really important so if we've had a really bad day you can just email or message and say oh I've had this today any thoughts what would you do as well as you kind of normal backup like supervisors etc it's just so valuable and I think I I do see it a lot when we start out in private practice we have this um, you know I think in business terms they call it scarcity mindset don't they where you worry that there's not going to be enough work to go around you're not going to be able to pay the bills but actually it's when you reach out and connect with other people yes you realize that there is sadly more than enough work for what we do yeah um And it's more about making sure that we serve people in the best way that we can. And we do that so much better as a network. Yeah, it's really interesting as you say that, actually. I've just recalled, actually, that when I was thinking about setting up in private practice, I was... um just finishing my maternity leave from having my second child and deciding what to do and actually I remember at the time thinking I'm not allowed to work while I'm on maternity leave so what I did is some voluntary sessions for a local postnatal depression group and I'd forgotten I even did that it's probably six years ago now um, and I went in and I just run the kind of information groups so it kept the boundaries in terms of safety and risk and then from that I had some individual referrals in those first few weeks when I set up my own practice and and again that kind of just keeping it really simple, taking my time and actually, you know, but again, putting in that time. So I, I didn't get paid for doing that work, but I got known in Horsham for doing that work. And then actually further down the line, that's led to referrals to people knowing the name. Um, and when you've got a quite a long name, that helps because it's sticks. <laughs> yeah, so it's, you know, literally taking your time, just small little chunks and fingers in pies. That's my, not a clinical term, but it should be. <laughs> you know having lots of small things and and not kind of setting your sights too high in terms of what you want to achieve but more I guess very act-based in terms of looking at what your values are is what you want to do as an independent practitioner rather than what you think you should be doing. Yeah I think that's really key. So how quickly did your services evolve and change from those kind of few sessions a week in in a room? really quite quickly to the point where the clinic that I was using didn't have the space to extend after those initial couple of hours so sometimes it was a bit of negotiating with colleagues and then I had to be really resourceful and borrow a chiropractic clinic and 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 be quite bold and cheeky and say to people look I don't really want a contract but if you you know could do with some extra pennies could I just have your room on an ad hoc basis could I ring up on a Friday and say do you have an hour on Monday and actually a lot of the local clinics again were really accommodating but have also carried on referring people so I have an osteopath locally who lent me a room six years ago sporadically who will every now and again say to a patient oh if you need a psychologist go see Tara so again it's literally small fingers in pie so within about six months I had a regular I had children at preschool so I only had limited hours but I had a nice caseload a regular caseload of people a nice balance of what we call private referrals where people pay themselves but also the health insurance companies and that's a big thing that's what I didn't learn on any of my private practice courses how to set up is about getting the balance so for me in terms of if you're relying on your income perhaps for mortgages and and, and your the main income um, for the home is just thinking about your balance so private people can cancel more easily they might decide as and when they come I find there's more negotiating whether if you have a nice mix of your private people and your health insurance people those health insurance people will make sure that your rent is paid for your building or your mm-hmm. clinic room is paid for your fees all of those things and then from there you can then you know swap and choose who you'd like to see around your holiday days and your other commitments as well 
Yeah, and I think that the balance is key, isn't it? Because we've all yeah. probably, I imagine that everybody has fallen foul of this, but fallen foul of very long payment terms yes. from insurance yeah. companies. So yes. it makes my head hurt even thinking about it. But one thing I learned after about a year of being like, oh my gosh, why is there no money in my bank account? I've, I've yeah. seen loads of people, was actually you need to know those payment terms and plan it out so you don't yeah. accept loads of clients from the one that's got 60-day payment terms. Yes, do you know what I do? <laughs> Very early on, I learned to have a nice mixture of the people that pay once a month mm. because those are the kind of incomes that I go, that is rent, that is fees, things that are kind of monthly every couple of weeks. And then having some of the insurance that pay weekly because that's quite helpful if you suddenly have an outlet or a course that you want to do, something like that. Um, and, and, and then the private patients kind of fit in around that then. And also because we have to consider things, I guess, that I didn't know when I first started. Of course, you're not paid. There's no annual leave. So if you're sick, there's no income. If you're on holiday, there's no income. If your children are sick, quite often there's no income because you're the one who might have to move people around. So thinking about all of those things is really important too. Yeah, definitely. And all stuff I wish I'd known at the beginning. But you yeah. kind of you learn it on the job. And I suppose yes. to an extent, some of the best learning comes that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and great learning curves. <laughs> so how did that work evolve into some kind of non-therapy work that I know that you're doing now? I think partly due to your wonderful page as well on Facebook but I think after about two years I think when my children were both in full-time education um, I realized actually it's very easy in private practice to just see people back to back Mm. and then never have time for the kind of reflective not the planning or the writing up of reports but because often you'll go to bed quite tired you've done your reports you've done your therapy planning for the next day it's the what else do I want to do so that kind of question your wonderful question the do more than therapy after about two years I decided to carve a day out of week that was to do reports but also to make sure that I'm doing CPD there's loads of online CPD and from that CPD it made me realize what I missed perhaps from the NHS what I'd like to do more of how that could or could not fit into what I do um, you know balancing aid of time but also the cost if you're going to be doing other courses or community initiatives you've got to be able to make sure you can still pay your bills so actually what I did during the beginning of this pandemic I started up a local online support group so using my psychology skills but not providing a therapy group I just thought what can I offer in this pandemic I felt a little bit lost and you know wondering what I could do to help the community and I had been thinking about that for a while in terms of branching out my psychology page for referrals into kind of a forum to help but I never quite had the right information in terms of making sure that it wasn't a therapy group and actually the pandemic provided me with that little push that I needed to go actually do you know what there are people here that might be struggling so I started up a Facebook group very clear terms and conditions and it just snowballed from there so it became really useful for them. I could post information on there I did some kind of infographics on coping with anxiety I did some videos of myself things I've never done before um, doing some techniques and strategies just checking in with people each day and then that got picked up by some local media and then it's allowed me now to kind of develop more of a community approach so over the next few months, what I'd really like to do is to change Horsham psychology into Horsham community psychology. Um, I've also started up a local compassionate campaign, which is more of a media campaign, really, to help people think about what they say and how and how they behave before they do it. So in kind of response, I guess, to some of the backlash of post-lockdown changes. And that's really, for me, created a passion here. I love seeing mm. patients. I love doing what I do. But there was a little something missing so that I love to be able to log on and say, how's everyone doing today? Or here's a wonderful example in our local community of someone helping, selling free masks or dropping off shopping for someone. And it's really nice to get feedback from people saying, thank your pages kept me going or your pages really saved me from having panic attacks or and that's what I do so for me the biggest thing is about what can I offer whereas when I first went into private practice it was more about what can I get from doing this job so I think my mindset has changed and that's really been quite I know it sounds silly but it's life-changing for me in terms of me wanting to offer to my local community the skills that I have whether that's paid or unpaid at times which is okay yeah and I think very much my experience and I think I've seen it in other people through the do more than therapy membership and from the wider group is that when you get to a level of security when you've got enough clients 
that's yeah. when the mind then Absolutely. looks at yeah. Yeah. how can I be of service and yeah. it's so frustrating because you kind of know that if there was a way of feeling like that from the beginning it would yeah. bring the clients and you would get that security but I don't think you can I think that yeah. you almost have to go through that horrible painful like oh my gosh what if I can't fill up my books what if I can't make rent this month and it's almost like you have to go through that and then you get to this place eventually where it's like right okay all the bills are sorted definitely um so my mind is free to be creative and think about different projects absolutely you're so is that you're spot on then in terms of it's the, the kind of sitting with your anxiety you need that in the early days and I guess one of the things for me is even though on paper I could write down these are my skills this is what I offer this is what I offer in terms of my background but I still felt inadequate every time someone comes through the door and I think it was the issue of money someone's paying me now mm-hmm. and sometimes I have clients who give you actual cash and to me I always thought gosh, I've got this, you know, the famous psychology imposter syndrome would show up day after day after day. How can I reach out and do anything else if I feel like this when I'm doing my day-to-day job? Um, And I had to ride through that. So I had to also get confidence in my skills and the way I run my business. My supervisor is fantastic. And she once said to me, it's your business. You can pick and choose who you see. And that was after four or five years of practice in the private sector, that it's okay to go, do you know what, actually, no, that's not really a referral for me, so I'm going to signpost that on. And with the confidence I've found as well, and the anxiety, that's allowed me to go forward and go, yes, this is me. This is how I work, and it's okay, because it's my business, and I do what I'm secure with, and what I think is, you know, within my risk framework and that's allowed me to be more confident in talking to the media about what I do talking to the community about how to help them I think in those early days I would have felt risky starting a Facebook page what if someone comes on there with a risk issue and have I been negligent all of those thoughts come Mm -hmm. to mind but actually now when you have a little bit more confidence I know this it's it's, you know it's stuff that we can do and the psychologists we're well trained in but sometimes we we have to kind of just make notice of that little kind of gremlin that shows up and says oh I'm not sure are you qualified for this should you be doing this yeah it sounds almost like there's two pieces to that um because I talked to a lot of people in the membership and in the Facebook group yeah who were asking that question you know I want to set up a Facebook group but I'm really scared what if somebody discloses something and I don't act on it in the right way and I I almost think you will solve that problem if you really know your purpose I talk about values and mission a lot Um, but I think a lot of the time people think that they should set up a Facebook page or use social media more or set up a group but they've just kind of got this vague idea that it might bring more clients to them or that they should be building some kind of an audience when actually it sounds like when it clicked into place for you it was because you were able to see exactly what the people in that community needed Yes. And you were able to create something to fill a specific need, yes. not a generic, I want to solve the world's problems kind of a need. Yeah, that is, you're absolutely right. It's getting that balance, isn't it, between me feeling a little bit like I have some skills to offer. What can I offer? This lockdown's coming and, you know, and, and, and watching the news is going to be a mental health crisis and kind of think, well, actually, I'm, I'm all about preventative. I do a lot of relapse prevention work and always have. That's very much part of how I work and kind of thinking, well, actually, you know, it's no different than having terms of conditions when you see a patient, you know, in terms of this is not a therapy group. You know, if there are risk issues, you will be signposted and, and, and and told where to go and actually I've had not one issue not even an issue with any trolls anything it's just been a really supportive creative place and I haven't had any sleepless nights which I thought I might have you know that might be my kind of way of monitoring you know the cost benefit analysis of doing this and you know we're kind of well month six now aren't we since the, the kind of pandemic started and the group shockingly yes <laughs> yes yeah and and that's paved way for other things you know to kind of think well actually this is okay maybe I can start something else out but yeah absolutely right around the kind of just holding back on that am I doing it you know to save the world or am I doing it because there's an identified need and I have some skills that maybe can help Mm. yeah because it makes it feel a little bit less daunting a little bit more possible yeah um and gives you something to say when that imposter syndrome does rear its head yeah yes it has its place on my mantelpiece in my clinic (laughs) (laughs) I use a lot of active my work and sometimes I have to use that with myself and go right okay I'm noticing you thought imposter syndrome you need to take a seat because I've got something value that I want to do yeah no that's certainly I use a lot of act too and I've got my own little book um for my imposter syndrome (laughs) 
Um, Because I think we do, we have to acknowledge it and we have to get good at recognising when it's something that we need to notice but not hop on board with. Um, And I think that comes when you know exactly why you're doing what you're doing. And it's so helpful as well when every now and again you get a little bit of feedback to know I'm doing this or I'm doing this extra time, especially during the pandemic when my kids were trying to be homeschooled. I was trying to run my clinic and there were some days I thought I really need to post this on social media or just reply to something on the group and thinking, oh, gosh, is this taking more time away from my family and my other values? It's actually, you know, this is important. And I've got one person coming back saying, thank you. That meant a lot. That video has helped me get through homeschooling or, you know, has helped me really navigate a tricky day at work today. And that for me, is the importance of feedback so we're scientists practitioners aren't we we like evidence based is this helpful or not if no one's joining the group and there's no feedback might make you evaluate what you're doing but if it's got mm-hmm. momentum and it's going and you're getting that feedback to me that's so important that it's pitched at the right level for them so I imagine that there might be lots of people listening to this now going I want that momentum but there's nobody talking to me in my group can yeah. you share kind of why do you think your group has been so successful I think because I took away the the original parameter that I had was around what if no one replies and actually what I did do and this was off the back of some of your work as well is just keep an eye on what happens in in an upper group so just googling depression group anxiety group and having a look actually uh, and one of the things that I'm involved in with yourself as well is the emotional health toolkit Mm. some days there will be days where people will comment and sometimes we'll post a video and no one will comment out of thousands of people that's okay that's not in itself a reflection of whether the group is used or not you know there could be lots of people taking things away and you have to look at other things like the lights and, and the views so it's looking at how you're going to measure change and how you're going to measure whether something's effective or not and just remembering that what we have as an idea needs to be a little bit flexible as well so I've got used to the fact that actually there might not be some comments on some days and other days there might be loads and to be honest I quite like it when there's not too many comments because it's manageable mm. and I- quite good risk wise as well that made it really clear that this is an emotional support forum for example that's the terminology I use for for my group Um, and that I am posting information I use words like we're sharing things for people to read so I use um, specific language in the hope that it promotes people to take it away and do what they want with it rather than posting about their anxieties online and confidentiality as well I think obviously we're quite a small community so it depends I guess the kind of town you live in the city where you are where I am people do know each other so I think that also perhaps means that people will self-regulate a little bit about what they comment um, it also does have an impact of whether who joins so after a couple of months I made my group from a closed group into a public group so that people can see the videos without perhaps their employer knowing that they've joined the group and you know they're just thinking about the fallout really because for some people they are very worried or what if my friend sees that I'm on this group or what if my employer sees um so those are the things they're all learning curves things I didn't realize at the beginning I thought safety closed group let's do that and then I realized I'm actually preventing some people from accessing this who could really benefit from it yeah I think that makes a lot of sense it's all about knowing the purpose of what you're doing and using outcome measures effectively creating your own that fit with that purpose that's where the elder background comes in in all the time with the EHT group because that group is not set up for interaction particularly because in order to comment or even like on some of the videos we post that's somebody hand raising and saying oh yeah I've got depression or I'm struggling with anxiety and we know that this culture our culture is is not up for that a lot of the time yeah that's got to be okay um if we're going to post psycho ed online yes I don't think you're ever going to get or certainly I haven't found an account yet um that posts kind of the more meaty psycho ed videos and gets engagement on those yeah but I think what you can do and what I've done in um groups that I've run is have some posts that are all a bit lighter and all about chat and other posts that are not um and you can nudge the algorithm along like that so you can have a post that is really easy and low risk for people to comment on that is just like describe your weekend in gifts I think that's one that Sam Hill our community manager (laughs) um, uses in her group quite a lot and it works for that group really well and then your next post can be your psycho ed video which no one's going to comment on but more people will see because the previous post did so well um it is interesting school path this morning there are some people that I didn't know even my 
group existed and I didn't want to make a big thing about it because I didn't really want friends watching in case again my imposter syndrome showed up <laughs> is actually some people going oh thanks that, that, that you know the drop anchor was really good and I thought oh gosh you've seen that so you know it's reaching out to people so there's a little bit of feedback <laughs> a little bit of evaluation and outcome measure um, and, and, and getting over that anxiety of people watching you I've never videoed myself before the pandemic and it made me do videos and for years I thought maybe I should put some videos online no I can't I can't do that it's not going to work and, and once you've done that initial hurdle that's been quite life-changing as well in terms of well actually you can describe some things you can use infographics but actually sometimes a good old-fashioned video here's how you do a breathing technique here's some good old-fashioned belly breathing a drop anchor if you're making yourself vulnerable as well I think that's really helpful for a, a client population or a community population to see as well absolutely absolutely and I always think um, often our fear is that we'll do something wrong yes. on a video or that it won't be particularly eloquent or especially yeah. Yeah. live video. I always get really anxious. Like, oh, what if I use the wrong term or explain it? Yeah. Badly? Yeah. And then I think, hold on, the person watching this, I don't want them to think that I'm this omnipotent person that never struggles. Absolutely. I yeah. want them to see that I struggle and I'm doing it anyway because that's yes. what I talk about in therapy. Yes. Um, so I do misspeak all the time. I mean, a lot of people listening to this probably <laughs> have heard that on my podcast and seen it in the Do More Than Therapy Facebook group, that my lives are often not polished at all. Um, and it's, that's Even. the same. I don't adapt it for a clinical population. When I'm putting out um, videos for parents, they are also not polished and I don't edit them very much um, for exactly that reason that you know, we're practicing what we preach. Absolutely. My mantelpiece in here is where I tell patients that this is what I've brought today. Here are my thoughts. If I line them all up as if they're little ornaments on the mantelpiece and say, well, who, who, who would join? Who would you be next to my imposter syndrome or my anxiety today? Or my, I forgot to do something for the school and I've had to walk to work feeling very inept as a mother this morning. <laughs> who would you put? You know, the kind of human side of things is so important. And I think as well, that one of the things that I've really enjoyed most actually is doing my community support group um, out of everything um, because it just kind of humanises the fact that we can talk and it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay. I think as well, just setting aside the people who perhaps don't have formally acknowledged mental health conditions, that the people who've suddenly been faced with months and months of working at home I might have Zoom fatigue, who are tired, who might be anxious, but it might not be at clinical levels, can access this group and get exactly the same as someone who has a formal diagnosis of something. And, and, and kind of normalising that spectrum to me has been so important. Mm. Yeah, I think that is really crucial. And it, that comes yeah. across really well in your social media. And I think if anybody listening to this is thinking, oh, I'd love to do that, but I'm not quite sure how, um, then because your group's public, they can go and check it out um, and get some inspiration. Because one thing I would really hope for in uh, the community around this podcast and the Do More yeah. Therapy community yeah. is that we do do that. If someone's doing something really well, go over and check it out. Check out what Tara's doing because it might make you feel like you can go ahead and do something like that yourself. Yeah, I wish I'd had that when I kind of started out. I did some fantastic courses on how to get into private practice, which was so, so good. But it's just the other little elements. I guess social media has, has evolved in six years, I, I suppose, even since I started in private practice. So those things weren't so relevant then, but I, I feel they're quite a, a huge part of what we would do in private practice now. And how you reach out, you know, we can get Zoom fatigue, but prior to that, sometimes I would have therapy fatigue, you know, seeing four or five people going and picking the kids up, doing the same the next day, five days a week, it just didn't give me any reflective time. And there was just that little something missing, you know, that what can I do with my skills? And it didn't have to necessarily be a paid thing. You know, it's just getting that balance of what else can I do that gives me the feeling of why I'm a psychologist, why I wanted to do this in the first place. So I am one of those people who used to go to work and really enjoy Monday morning. I didn't crawl out of bed and go oh no it's Monday because I like what I do and, and I like it when I see change and I've actually got much better at sitting with anxiety about imposter syndrome sitting with anxiety where perhaps there hasn't been change for some patients and looking at what we need to do because that's what we do for scientists we get out our magnifying glass we have a look at the formulation and we revisit and we have to get good at being vulnerable like that I think in order to perhaps then succeed otherwise we won't take risks mm, I think that's very true Thinking about imposter syndrome, certainly my experience is that nothing brings out imposter syndrome quite like engaging with the mainstream media. Yes. Um, 
they they like to refer to you as an expert whether you've given them permission or not um (laughs) so do you mind sharing with us kind of how you started to engage with the media and what that was like for you it was a really overnight unexpected it was not part of any plan there was no kind of i'd love to get into that um i wrote a article in the local paper off the back of my support group and it just got picked up by a local well a few media agencies locally and then it got picked up more nationally so I've ended up doing quite a few radio broadcasts so I did um, one right at the beginning of lockdown for the world service on the BBC radio which was lovely and that was with two other psychologists um, who were over in America and we had a conversation again a nice basic conversation about what people may be facing so it was really trying to bring what was in my support group with what I was hoping to develop in the future which was how we can help each other rather than kind of batten down the hatches and go I'm looking after myself everyone else for themselves Um, so that conversation allowed me then a platform to build up with other media agencies just talking about to be honest the week by week events so I've done some work on mask anxiety I've done work on coping with lockdown anxiety um, I've done some media interviews recently I did another one with the BBC World Service the other week um, just looking at the kind of fact that we've come out of lockdown and I was expecting this oh we're out now off we go but actually it's very spiky we might go back a few steps and some areas are having lockdown again all over the world and some are coming out um, and it was really nice to be able to talk about how normal that is and and how we cope with anxiety and also trying to normalise anxiety, which a lot of radio presenters really struggle with. And I've kind of said, you know, we need to get rid of this anxiety, the classic, it needs to go and trying to battle. I guess for me, the main thing about doing media was trying to reach, even if it's just one or two listeners, to try and normalise how your body responds to Mm. threat and adversity. And although it's uncomfortable, trying to say it's okay and your body will cope and here are some extra techniques to help you cope but if those people then tell a few people who tell a few people it really does have a snowball effect so I've kind of chipped away and chipped away I've had to make myself very vulnerable (laughs) I've had to deal with imposter syndrome I've had to deal with Vanessa Phelps (laughs) Mm. but it's been really worth it because if you chip away then you forge relationships with people And then what I found is those people will come back to you again. So it's been really nice kind of forming a kind of a media community now. So people who might email and say, could you pop on tomorrow? So I've done a lot of local work as well. It's kind of gone in full circle. And then I've been able to talk about my support group again locally. I've been able to talk about how to help people wear masks when they've been a bit anxious and and, and deal with other people who may be um, making comments if they're not able to wear a mask in a shop. So that's been really lovely. Um, And some local radio stations have kind of had me on standby to kind of bring in as and when which is really lovely it's very anxiety provoking but really lovely so I can also feel free now to kind of email and say hey this is coming up in the media a lot would it be worth us looking at this and giving you a little bit of autonomy over what you speak about and a bit of control (laughs) yeah and I think that's really important for people who might be starting out with the media to recognize And it's something that um, Rachel Spencer, who did our press masterclass in the membership, talked about, that once you're known as a helpful person, you then have a lot more power to pitch something that you're passionate about. So Rachel helped me to get some press coverage last year. And the way that we did that was I helped... um, do some silly stuff over Christmas about like, oh, Christmas jumper personality types and things like that that made me really uncomfortable because I was like, this really isn't psychology, really. Um, Not evidence-based. I put so many caveats in everything I did, but I basically wrote kind of an entertainment piece for them and sort of caveated it at the end, like this was not a study. And But that got picked up a lot. And I ended up on lots of local radio talking about that, which I did not really want to do, if I'm honest. I was a bit like, oh, God, what am I saying? Um, What am I putting my name to? But from that, I was then able to pitch a advice piece for single parents coping over Christmas um, without their kids. and that was that was my mission. That was what I wanted. I wanted that piece in the Daily Mail where it would get read by the most people. Yeah, which is fantastic, isn't it? Mm, and it got it got there and it got so much traffic, so much more. I could never achieve that with a blog or a podcast or yeah. anything I could put out would never reach those people. Um, and so I think it was worth it. 
even yeah. though I still look back and I cringe a little bit about Christmas jumpers, if that that I did them a favour and they then were more likely to do me a favour or trust me enough to let yeah. me write a more in-depth piece for them. And it sounds like that is really similar to your experience. That trusting, that kind of having quite often producers will text you at ridiculous times of night. Will you go on at 6.40 in the morning and, oh my gosh, what am I going to say? Or, or the worst ones are with five minutes notice where then anxiety just takes over and you can't really think what you need to say at all. Mm. <laughs> Tongue doesn't engage properly. Um, but actually, the more you do that and say, yes, yes, I'll just do this and making room, you know, it kind of chips away at, at this kind of, oh, I can't do this mentality. And actually, once you, I think the first time I emailed a producer and said, hey, this has come up in the media now. Would it be worth doing this? I literally hovered over the send button because I thought, can I? Is this cheeky? Are they going to then never use me again because I've overstepped the mark? And I thought, I had to think, well, actually, what would I do if a patient had said that? You know, in traditional CBT terms, what's the worst that can happen? They might not use you again. That's okay. You took a risk. Do it. And I hit send. And then the next day I had a phone call. which said, actually, yeah, we'd love to cover this. What a great idea. Or we don't want to cover it this week, but could we do it in a couple of weeks' time and, and, and see what happens? So with mask anxiety, I kind of sent an email saying, I'd love to do something locally. Um, I've just talked on the BBC World Service about this and it got some really good reviews. Could we try and do something to cover Sussex and Surrey? And they said, yeah, great. Let's wait till a week into wearing masks. So that's where their expertise and mine came together in terms of let's not talk about it day one when people are overwhelmed. Let's wait a week and see where people are at. And actually that, that interview, which was on a Saturday morning, was really, really well received because mm. you know, listeners were able to say, ah, yes, we found this already. Or we've observed this and that's really helpful. So yes, it's that kind of blending, isn't it, of media experience and, and your psychology experience. And not being afraid to kind of say no. I've said no to a couple of people and they said, should people be doing this? Or isn't it terrible about this? And, and being bold and not trying to please, actually. Mm. We, to, I'm a psychologist talking I'm not here just as a guest phoning in so if people are giving inaccurate you know I had somebody ask me about dreams and then why is it that they someone had this certain dream and I had to say well actually you know we don't know that there's no exact science but here's some of the things we can think about and you might feel that you're being a bit bold <laughs> by saying that but it's also quite educational a lot of producers have said they've learned a lot by having more psychologists on um, talking about kind of evidence-based practice and, and helping people so that's really lovely to see as well and it seems like something that perhaps becomes easier to remember over time is that you're still you so yeah. even if they call at six o'clock in the morning with five minutes notice you might feel like it's not your most polished performance but the head that's on your shoulders is the same one that went through all of your training all of your experience Good point. yes yeah yeah it doesn't Sometimes, leave you yeah I kind of think I don't listen to it back straight away I usually ask other people to say hey what did you think of that and I have a couple of really brilliant colleagues that I used to work with who will always listen they're really good they're probably the only two that do mm. um who are quite good for not the kind of family feedback of oh yeah it's great just because you're on but actually yeah that was really good or I like the way you said that or oh gosh you took on so and so and oh did you really say that <laughs> so it's okay it's, you know it's okay to have I think that was really useful actually to pick a couple of colleagues that you know really well who are your friends as well to kind of say actually can you just give me some feedback are there you know what did I sound like did I give enough pauses you know how is this the first time I had to go on live radio I had no idea do I do it on a phone on a laptop how does this work <laughs> you know when do I speak sometimes you can't hear the presenter and you don't know when it's your turn so that can come across on air and that could cause you anxiety and you could back off but once you kind of begin to learn some of that as well and again making room for that anxiety it makes for a better experience you know and not writing too much stuff down quite often now I'll just do it <laughs> I'll make sure I'm up to date on what's happening in the world but writing less stuff down otherwise you find yourself scanning <laughs> trying to read things. Mm, that sounds like a really useful tip actually because I think what's coming across is that now you're connecting with the people yeah. at yeah. the other end of the phone or at the other end of zoom yeah. rather than being in your head 
Yes, made some nice relationships, which is really lovely. And, um, you know, one of the nice things that I've seen as well is that sometimes you'll see producers recommend you on Twitter to other people, but then quite often you will get bumped down the list because there's some very famous people. But it's just nice that people think, okay, after a few interviews now, I've obviously done okay because I'm invited back again. And that was your kind of biggest fear. What if I do one and and they haven't called me again because they think I'm rubbish? That's the the kind of classic thing, isn't it? Rather than, well, they only need you to talk about X, Y, Z. But when you kind of get called back again and again and for me that's been really quite empowering as somebody who's always wanted to kind of reach out and do a bit more community work but just has been kind of had that roadblock of anxiety and are there better people there must be people more qualified than me that are eating their Weetabix and listen to me talk about mask anxiety (laughs) yeah but you know they're eating their Weetabix so (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay so you mentioned that you have a sort of media project that you're working on yes. at the moment. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So it was in the early days. I've never done a campaign before, so I had to do a little bit of research. So it's probably not in its finest hours yet. It's a very small local campaign to try and increase compassion towards others as we emerge from lockdown. So that's the kind of premise. Um, and it really came out of the fact that I was watching a lot of toxicity on social media in my local community and in the newspaper. Um, and there was a local school who were told that their children could all go back in June. At the last minute, our council said it just wasn't safe and they weren't able to and some lovely local parents did a petition socially distant very appropriate but the comments that I saw on social media were really toxic and really unhelpful and actually research has shown that that kind of toxicity can lead to lowered self-esteem lowered mood increased anxiety levels so I thought actually this is exactly what I was thinking about maybe take the plunge so I've set up a Facebook page and Instagram page so linked together to try and encourage people to stop take a pause, take a breath in, I kind of have a slogan, a breath out, and just think about what do I want to say? How could I say it? Do I need to say it at all? You know, how could the other person feel? Um, And it again got picked up by a journalist who wrote my original article, who has put it in the paper, so it's got more momentum. Um, And then it got picked up by a local radio station again, which was really, really lovely. So it's only a small, again, it's a public page, you can like it, you can follow it or just type it in, but it allows people, there's some infographics on there, there's some little quotes of the day. And I share just little small examples, like a local enterprise was making masks for people who might struggle to buy them or get access and they're dangled in a tree in a pub car park so I put that on there you know just small acts of people being nice to each other in the community so I have to kind of get a fine line between it not being too patronizing that we're talking about compassion which is very different from just general kindness so you know it's a a very small work in progress I want to do it and I want to do it properly so that actually even though it's come out of lockdown I would like to keep that group going and also my support group as a longer term thing even if we have to kind of evolve the names and the function of the group but the idea is that we want to I can just make one or two people think before they type or before they speak um, that actually could that then impact on the mental health of the community that we live in and those people could be our school teachers our policemen our firemen our shop workers who are front line for people you know saying things perhaps without so much thought so if that then makes for a better community if it makes our teachers feel safer and not at risk from people saying things to them that may be emotionally hurtful, then that's my aim is, you know, if I can make one person's day a little bit better. So that comes back to my kind of the motivation being about what can I bring? What can psychology bring to help people's mental health just on a day-to-day basis without necessarily a big grand clinical intervention, you know, that small little smile or let me look. I had a wonderful example of the day I was in a shop and I saw a gentleman in front of me without a mask on and I had the very normal thought of, oh, why is he not wearing a mask? And I could only see the back of him. And when he turned around, I saw that he had hemiparesis down one side and he'd had a stroke and he was really struggling with his breathing. And I thought, gosh, in that minute from that initial thought, that's my aim is to get people, if they can, to just engage those frontal lobes somewhat. And to mm. think, I might that person have decided not to wear a mask whereas actually in social media what we can do is be very quick and we can type so and so in this shop's not wearing a mask or if you don't wear a mask this is our opinion of you and that can be hurt people and the snowball effect yes absolutely you know as soon as you start allowing those thoughts to run then you start to turn them on yourself as well and suddenly we're living in a very threat-based judgmental society 
Yeah. And, you know, we're realistic. That happens in day-to-day life. But sometimes I think even if it just reaches one or two people who just see a quick infographic and think, ah, okay, right, there may be people who can't wear masks because of these reasons. You know, there's some really good guidance out there, but I found it hard to get to. And that was one of the things that I was talking about on the radio recently that I didn't realise some of the exemptions. And I'm a psychologist and that information. I've had to really dig around on various websites. So I kind of thought, well, how can you make things like that more accessible? Is that the things I can share on the page? You know, if somebody's had stroke, if you're not a psychologist or perhaps a chained medic, you might not realise why that may prohibit you from wearing a mask, you know, for some conditions. Um, So it just I think it helps sometimes to just give that little bit of context that people might be lacking as well and it's a place to go to as well you know it'd be interesting to see if I can see what the traffic looks like on my Facebook page when there's been other toxicity so we've had a few things lately in our local community and I thought you know what I need to do now is to look at what's the traffic on you know does it make people go to somewhere safe and to talk about things and I've, I get quite a few we were talking about anonymity before um some people will message privately to kind of say thank you this page is helpful whereas they may not want to put that formally um on a page or publicly and it's really nice to know okay I might have reached one two people this week that's my job done that's what I want to do yeah because it's not about celebrity or being known by thousands yeah. and thousands of people it's about reaching a few people who may not have ever darkened your door before. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Kind of think, you know, just those people who might not want to reach out and say, I've got anxiety or I have depression, but perhaps through Facebook, you know, with all its pros and cons, it can be quite a safe containing space if it's the right kind of group. So, you know, if you, you might not be someone who wants to go and seek formal treatment, but if you can see a, a video that supports you with a panic attack or day-to-day anxiety, that may help you cope. It may put you in a place to think, well, actually, maybe I do need some more support with this. Or, or other people just saying, hey, we feel the same we're really struggling zoom fatigue there was an interesting article about that about a month or two into lockdown and I thought that's me and then other people on my page were saying actually this is us gosh it's really hard and mm. the emotional health toolkit did a fantastic piece on you know dealing with uh, fatigue of, of hours and hours of zoom sessions and the fact that actually that can affect we're all human it can affect us and, and normalizing that which I think is mm. really yeah, I think we've got so much power through the media to do normalisation yeah. yes. um, of all of these things. And it sounds like you're doing such an amazing job. Um, I feel like a lot of people are going to want to look up your campaign. So what are the correct handles for it so people can find it? So my support group is now the Sussex Coronavirus Emotional Support Forum. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also have, so that's got a Facebook page, um, which is um, public, so anyone from around the UK can access that. Um, but the Compassionate Horsham is hashtag Compassionate Horsham, all one word. And that is local to the town where I'm at as well. But a lot of people have a lot of followers who are all well who kind of hit like and come in as well because media's like that, it can, it can snowball. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is um, on Instagram as Compassionate Horsham, all one word. And also on Facebook as well. Brilliant. And I'd really encourage people to check that out and, and get inspired because I love the idea of community psychology on social media. It's yes, an amazing yeah. tool and we've not had it before. And I just love the fact that you've taken this resource you've got available to us and are running with it and experimenting with it. I think it's brilliant. Experimenting <laughs> being key. I think that's the best thing. You know, have a dabble, play around, mm. you know, sit with your anxiety and have a go. I think doing infographics has helped. I've learned a lot of tech around how to do those wonderful graphics that people do, and that's really helped my confidence as well to make what I want to say look a little bit more professional as well. Yes, and I will in the show notes to this episode, I will share a couple of links to um tools that I use for graphics. Yeah, yeah, I use cool. Canva, is that one yeah, that you use? I've become I think I might need to join Canva Anonymous. I have yes. It's very <laughs> yeah, too very effective. Yes. Yeah, but it is empowering, isn't it? Because I think I used to look at those kind of graphics and think, Oh, everybody's got a designer or everybody's just super clever thought- and I'm not person at a desk yes doing that for you and then I thought oh gosh I can't justify the cost of that so all of those things are just things you learn as you go along and Mm. you know have a little fiddle around with it see if it works for you brilliant so obviously I've taken up loads of your time this afternoon um but just a selfish question before we finish 
Um, so what two action steps would you recommend that other psychologists or therapists listening to this go away and do now? The number one thing for me is taking your time, that urge to get things going. I went to Ryman's, I bought stationery the first day I set up my private practice and I just expected that I would just work every day. But knowing my limits, booking those two sessions a week and just taking my time. And the second thing is throwing my question on its head. So my initial question was, what can I do with my skills when I set up a private practice? Actually, what I would recommend to people is to go, what can I bring? to my community what can I bring to the private practice in terms of helping people because actually that's how we utilize my skills better than thinking where do these skills fit so rather than going LD mental health where do I put this it's what does my community need and and how can I therefore perhaps work backwards and use my skills to achieve that that's really really valuable advice I love that I love both of those I'm going to write them down (laughs) because I definitely need to remember both of those things Um, Okay, so final selfish question then. Um, If I could get anyone, who would you ideally like me to try and get for this podcast? Oh, so I wasn't sure about this this morning, but I am also in the middle of a BPS conference today um, on communities and families and coming together after lockdown. And there are some media psychologists who are presenting on there. And actually, there was a guy this morning and excuse me, I've forgotten his name. I have to send you that in a link. Um, It would be really lovely, I think, to get um, somebody who works in media psychology, I think, who because some people study the effect of following people on social media but there are those that also work with and and help psychologists become part of the media and and talk on the media so it'd be really interesting to get someone from perhaps both of those different elements on. Yes that would be really fascinating I've often really wanted to talk to the psychologists that work in tv production so like in the Love Island team and that kind of thing. Yes that would Um, be Oh, so interesting. I know ITV were advertising earlier on this year, actually, weren't they? Yeah, I um, saw that in the BPS magazine. Yes, yeah. And I kind of thought, oh, under whoever applied for that job, I'd really be interested if they could do a podcast as well. Okay, I'm going to hunt them down <laughs> because I do think there's a level of bravery, I think, associated oh, with that absolutely. kind of work. Yes, um, yeah. But also, I, I bet that they sit around evaluating the evidence base just like we do. Yeah. Um, and I, How- I just love to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> I reckon a lot of people probably clicked on that job advert just to look because I think somebody shared it on the private practice forum actually mm. and I wonder how many of us actually went oh no I can't rather than I don't have the skills. <laughs> yeah I, yes very much it was a I can't that's too frightening um, yes. from my perspective. <laughs> Um, yeah that would be fascinating well thank you so much Tara this has been a really interesting interview and I reckon a lot of people are going to feel inspired and empowered to set up their own community projects on social media now Um, so thank you so much and I will see you in the Facebook group (laughs) thank you planning on launching something new Hoping to reach more people and build a business that lets you live your values while avoiding burnout? Then you need to download my cheat sheet, 14 Steps to a Simple Launch. It's a foolproof process to make sure you develop your project with the people you want to help and then get it in front of as many of them as possible. It's totally free and you can find it at psychologist.drosie.co.uk. I'll put the link in the show notes.